As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. I'm usually a believer in the theory that the cards you get dealt with geography shape the direction your nation heads. The successful countries like the US, Germany and China all have huge geographical advantages, like deep internal river systems, oceans and deserts that separate them from enemies, or incredibly fertile ground to feed your populace. But for every rule, there was always an exception. And famously, that exception is the Mongols. In the 12th and 13th centuries, the Mongols, with no navy and one of the harshest climates on the planet, conquered the largest contiguous empire in the world. They threw off their disadvantages and smashed every opponent they came across. Just to get started, the Mongols conquered China, arguably one of the strongest empires in the world at that point. And that's what we learned about Mongolia. At least, that's what I learned from reading in school. If popular culture were to be believed, the history of the Mongols ends in the late 1300s, when the cards catch back up with them. And that, for a lot of people, is where their knowledge of the Mongols ends. But what happened afterwards? What is the story of the Mongol Empire today? Where does Mongolia sit on the giant chessboard that is Asia? How did a nation, smashed and blockaded between two of the world's superpowers, in an area with very little rain and freezing winds, become one of the biggest peacemakers in Asia? Well, for that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. End of the Line Well, I think Mongolia uh, went through a a tremendous period of expansion in the 13th and 14th centuries. Then it sort of went back, the Mongols went back to Mongolia, and uh, nobody had heard of them really for quite some time until the 20th century. When in the 20th century, they they broke away from China, which had ruled them for a couple of hundred years. And uh, in 1921, they joined the Soviet Union uh, and became the second largest communist country, the second uh, communist country in the world, uh, and remained uh, under Soviet and communist influence until 1990. Uh, there were some good aspects to that. Education improved, uh, health improved as a result of Soviet influence, but there were also the purges that uh, uh, had an impact on uh, on Mongolia, just as they did in the Soviet Union. A lot of people died in the 1930s, uh, were executed for no reason, uh, particularly monks, Buddhist monks. Morris Rubasi is an associate adjunct professor at Columbia University, specializing in the history and politics of East Asia. He has written or edited over 23 books on the subject and was even awarded an honorary doctorate from the National University of Mongolia. He joins us today. But since 1990, Mongolia has opened up uh, to towards capitalism, towards a kind of a rampant capitalism, uh, has been has turned to 
international financial agencies like the International Monetary Fund, the Asian Development Bank, which have de demanded changes uh, which have basically harmed the country. Their economic changes, immediate move towards uh, capitalism without much of the population understanding much about uh, capitalism. And the result has been a uh, those who understood capitalism in, in the country made out very well, and there's been tremendous inequality in income uh, since that period, since the 1990s. A few people have made tremendous sums of money, and uh, the, the rest of the population is, is not living well. The only other important aspect is uh, the, the international monetary agencies told them basically to re rely on the revenue from mining. Mongolia has tremendous resources of coal, uh, gold, copper, and uh, in fact, the uh, foreign uh, mining companies streamed into the country. Mongolia has not profited very much except uh, from this mining, except for a few at the very top. So let's go back to the 90s and the fall of the Soviet Union. Before the fall, Moscow was giving huge subsidies to satellite nations like Mongolia and North Korea. But when the USSR came crashing down, Mongolia was forced to pretty much fend for itself overnight. What was that transition like for Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia? Not everything needed to be changed, actually. Uh, the, uh, the educational system was actually superb. Many uh, Mongolians knew Russian. Uh, they had a very good group of scientists. Uh, some of the uh, scientists were trained in the Soviet Union, came back. Veterinarians were trained in the Soviet Union. So there were positive elements. A medical system, a rudimentary medical system, existed uh, un, uh, under the, with, with Soviet assistance, uh, which was not bad. Uh, it was just in the political arena that things were, were not as, uh, as, as pleasant as, as uh, they ought to have been. And actually, um, Mongolia was moving rapidly in terms of some areas of industrialization with, with Soviet help in the 1970s. Uh, they did uh, establish some industries, uh, industries uh, related to pastoralism, uh, leather industries, a certain number of consumer industries. Uh, it was just when the Soviets uh, collapsed uh, that put the Mongols in a, in a very precarious position because all of their trade and, and much of their foreign assistance had derived from the Soviet Union. Uh, they had to break away from that, and uh, the, the alternatives were basically to get assistance or uh, trade uh, with, with China uh, or to turn to the West. And uh, the, the Mongols decided to turn to the international financial agencies from the West in part, in large part, because they had they had had a an adversarial relationship with China for uh, really for centuries. Uh, Ch they felt the Chinese had taken advantage of them uh, when uh, China moved in in the late 17th and early uh, 18th centuries, had exploited the Mongols, and so there was a resistance to uh, dealing with China. The result is they they focused on uh, the relations with uh, with the West. Before we move on, I want to understand a question that has been bugging me for a while now. 
just north of Mongolia used to lie the small Soviet Republic of Tanatuva. It had a very similar situation to Mongolia. They were both steppe-based, semi-nomadic people, both communist satellites, and both on the edges of the Soviet Union, in the middle of Siberia. Although in 1944, the USSR absorbed Tanatuva into the Union, and to this day, it remains a part of the Russian Federation. So why wasn't Mongolia absorbed in the same way and incorporated into the Union? Uh, well, Mon Mongolia had been basically under China, and it had never been under the, under the Russians or the Soviet Union. China had been the dominant power up until 1911, and so it was a slightly different situation. Uh, moreover, from 1911 to 21, there were efforts to achieve uh, independence in uh, in Mongolia, and uh, the, the Soviets didn't want to look as if they uh, were uh, taking advantage of the Mongols and incorporating them as part of the Soviet Union. It's a different uh, a different strategy there, a different situation between Tanutuva and uh, and Mongolia. What about during the Sino-Soviet split during the Cold War, where Beijing and Moscow became somewhat adversarial? Uh, did this create competition for influence over Mongolia? Well, uh, only since 1921 was the Soviet uh, influence predominant. Before that time, the Chinese were involved, Chinese traders uh, in 18th and 19th centuries and so on. And the Soviets were fairly dominant from 1921 to 1990. Uh, very close relations. Uh, the, the, the major foreign language that the uh, Mongols spoke uh, was was Russian. They didn't really study Chinese. There were uh, when the Sino-Soviet split occurred in the 1950s and 60s, Mongolia opted to side with the Soviet Union. Now, since 1990, uh, things have changed dramatically. The Soviets could not provide the assistance that they had in the past, technical assistance, monetary assistance, uh, they had their own problems. And so China, uh, so the Mongols have had to turn to China for trade, for capital investment, and the Chinese are now fairly dominant economically. Uh, they, they're the largest trade partner of, uh, of Mongolia, they're the largest investors in Mongolia in mining and everything else. Uh, the Mongols are somewhat concerned about this, and uh, they have set up a number of restrictions uh, to prevent the, the Chinese from being dominant in the country, uh, not, not allowing uh, many Chinese to settle in, in Mongolia, keeping them out uh, as much as possible. But they are increasingly dependent economically on China. Uh, there's no two ways about it. China is, uh, has, plays a very important economic role, and uh, presumably economics, to a certain extent, dictates politics. So uh, the uh, Mongols have been very reluctant to challenge uh, China politically, um, except on the issue of the Dalai Lama. The Mongols are... Tibetan were Tibetan Buddhists, and so till very recently, they allowed the Dalai Lama to visit. That has changed. Uh, the Chinese expressed uh, great annoyance that uh, the Mongols were allowing the Dalai Lama into the country, and uh, he hasn't visited in, in a number of years. He used to come once every couple of years, but uh, 
that stopped about five or six years ago. And so that's, an, that's another indication of the role that China has come to play uh, in, in Mongolia. In the latest poll done in 2019, 91% of Mongolians had a somewhat favorable opinion of Russia, way above that of China. If the people seem to be leaning towards Moscow, but the economy seems to be leaning towards Beijing, which path do you see for Ulaanbaatar's future? I think it's unlikely that they'll move towards Moscow, although Moscow has made uh, a number, uh, Mr. Putin has made a number of efforts to play a greater role in Mongolia. Um, I think the, the fact is that the, the Mongols have a, a sort of a nostalgic feeling about the Soviet period, and uh, that has translated into the, the belief that uh, Russia and, uh, is the uh, is the, the country that they ought to depend upon, as you as you point out, ninety percent or whatever. Uh, China is not trusted as much, and partly because of what happened in Inner Mongolia, uh, the Mongols are fear of being uh, swamped with uh, Chinese immigrants, as, as as was the case in Inner Mongolia. From the from the nineteen from early action in the twentieth century, but again, but pronounced after nineteen forty nine, after the communists took over China, there's been a tremendous increase of Chinese in in Inner Mongolia. Uh, the, the fact is that now uh, the Mongols are a are a minority in Inner Mongolia. The Mongols in in Mongolia are fearful of the same thing happening to them, and so they're they're eager to maintain contact with Moscow, but whether that's realistic, I don't know. Uh, Moscow has its own difficulties, has its own economic difficulties, and so it's uncertain whether the, the Mongols will be able to uh, lure <laughs> or, or get assistance from, uh, from Russia uh, as it has with, with China, particularly economic assistance. But there still is a, a considerable prejudice about the about the Chinese, anything that goes wrong, um, uh, a food that's spoiled, rice that comes in from uh, from China that uh, has uh, insects in it is blamed on the Chinese and and so on and so forth. So, uh, on the popular level, there is uh, some uh, prejudice and uh, lack of uh, uh, an effort to lure more Chinese into into Mongolia. That actually sums up a pretty key aspect of Mongolian foreign policy. They seem to be friends with everyone. They have embassies from both North and South Korea in the country. They have good relations with India and Pakistan. So why does Ulaanbaatar make such an effort to be friends with everyone? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. They've made a deliberate effort, really, to do this. Uh, uh, The concept of third, uh, third friendship with a number of different countries uh, uh, what's interesting to me, and they've tried to, to play a role uh, in, in the dispute in Korea because they have uh, good relations with both South and North Korea, and they have served as intermediaries on a number of occasions in disputes between North, the North and South. They have deliberately made a, a significant effort to uh, go beyond just China and, and Russia. Uh, they are concerned about both of those countries, uh, particularly China, uh, Russia. They're not afraid of Russians uh, arriving in large numbers in in Mongolia, but they are to a certain extent still fearful that that the Chinese will arrive. So they're trying to uh, find uh, a way of of, uh, reaching to a larger constituency, both in Asia and and in the West. Uh, They, of course, consider themselves uh, to be uh, part of the same language grouping as Turkey. And so Turkey has played uh, quite an important role in uh, in Mongolia. The Japanese consider themselves to, the Japanese and the Koreans also uh, have played economic roles, political roles in, uh, in Mongolia. And uh, uh, the Japanese are actually the, the largest providers of foreign aid. So, uh, and, and the, the, the Mongols have deliberately uh, attempted to go beyond their two neighbors uh, and, and try to reach outsiders who might be helpful to them economically, politically, diplomatically. So Mongolia tries to put itself in the middle of everything. Even with the new Siberian gas and oil pipelines, Mongolia has been advocating very hard for the pipeline to go through Mongol territory on its route to China rather than just going around Mongolia through Manchuria in the northeast of China. So why would Mongolia be pushing so hard to have this pipeline travel through its own territory? Well, I, I think it's, first of all, it's, it's cheaper. It's uh, uh, the going through Mongolia, going through Mongolia is the optimal route uh, rather than going all the way around in, in Russia and on to China. It's a direct route. Uh, the, uh, the Russians feel that they ought not to abandon uh, their uh, influence in in Mongolia and whatever influence they have, and so they're supportive of the idea of the of the pipeline going through Mongolia as well. So, with this dichotomy of ideas between Beijing and Moscow, what do you think will be the biggest threat facing Mongolia over the next ten to fifteen years? I think the major thing that's major problem. Really, it's not foreign relations, but uh, the corruption that in, engulfs the uh, the government. Uh, they have to deal with that if they're going to be able to deal with both the West, China, and and Russia. Uh, my own feeling is that they'll probably reluctantly have more and more contact with China. China offers much more economically than uh, the West has been able to to deliver. There's hardly any trade with with uh, the United States. Uh, Mongolia has very limited trade with the United States. Uh, there's been some trade with Japan and Korea, but the largest 
uh, the largest influence has been China and, and Russia. And I suspect China will, will be the largest influence uh, economically, not culturally, but certainly economically. There, there's no two ways about it, basically. Mongolia, a nation stuck between the second and third largest militaries in the world, has no ports. Every single kilogram of Mongol goods has to travel through one of its just two neighbours before it reaches its final destination. Neighbours who can change the rules at any point, and there's not much Mongolia can do about it. It also doesn't help this situation that they have more Mongols living in Chinese-controlled territory than they do in all of Mongolia. Ulaanbaatar is desperately trying to forge its own path, but when the waves are this tall and coming from both sides, the tides tend to have more influence than the sails, and Mongolia may not be the one steering the ship anymore. But to talk more about that, we turn to our next guest. Part 2. Beyond the Borders Mongolia is, is actually um, the second largest landlocked country on Earth. I mean, it's um, 1.5 million square kilometers, so it's quite large. Uh, but then, funny enough, it's got... Um, relatively a smaller population uh, than Hong Kong. I mean, it's only half of the population, or less than half. It's only 3.3 million people there in 1.5 million square kilometers. And of course, the other, another characteristic is that it's completely landlocked. There is no access to any sea or even inland sea. Um, and then because the, of the um, terrain um, and the climate, um, it, po it poses tremendous challenge um, to people's livelihood because uh, north of the country is very mountainous, high mountains, and also um, quite close um, to um, impacts from um, the Siberia. So in the winter, uh, the Siberian um, sort of cold um, winds and, and would, would descend uh, on uh, Mongolia and turning the whole place into a, a huge refrigerator. Andrew Liung is an international and independent China strategist based in Hong Kong. He's a Brains Trust member of the Evian Group, an international expert for the Reuters Group, and a distinguished contributor to the Asymmetric Threat Contingency Alliance, along with many other qualifications. He joins us today. Um, and then, of course, um, because of, of the um, modernization, because it's landlocked, it's, um, it's very, and because of the climate, um, and um, with the rise of um, uh, the Bolsheviks in Russia, um, at the time of the Bolsheviks, um, uh, it, it, that was the height of the um, expansion, um, expansion of the former USSR. And they thought that, um, obviously, they, they expanded the influence, uh, they influenced the, the, Chi the Chinese Communist Revolution, and they uh, thought that they could establish a client state um, in Mongolia, in outer Mongolia, in the north of Mongolia. Um, I could still remember when I was small, um, I was studying geography. Uh, there was a place back a long time ago because I, 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 I was born before the birth of the People's Republic of China. <laughs> that was 19, so I was born before 1949. Uh, I could still remember uh, when I was small, um, I, uh, the map um, on my geography textbook of Mongolia actually included both South and North 
um, outer Mongolia. And that was the Mongolia as a whole. But then, of course, um, outer Mongolia, uh, the Bolsheviks and later the USSR established a client state there. Um, and, and, and of course, that was um, uh, declared its independence um, from China eventually. Uh, and so you have um, a separate um, Mongol, um, a Mongolia state. Uh, of course, that is, part, that is actually outer Mongolia in the old days. And what is that relationship like today? How reliant is Ulaanbaatar on Beijing? It's highly dependent um, for uh, trade. For example, um, China actually um, accounts for about 90% uh, of uh, Mongolia's exports and because they, the only thing that they can export to China are minerals. Um, it is very rich in, in um, uh, the kind of minerals like um, coal and uh, but also gold and, and, and uh, copper, zinc, um, iron, uh, tungsten, and oil, oil and gas. And of course, China is the biggest consumer uh, of the, all these resources. And so China accounts for something like 90% um, of uh, Mongolia's exports. Um, and that made Mongolia dependent uh, on China economically. Uh, but then... Um, uh, even though um, uh, Mongolia is rich in oil and gas, uh, because of its lack of infrastructure, lack of extracting uh, capabilities. So it depends on Russia um, for its energy needs. Um, so that, that is the, uh, a country highly dependent on um, resource. Um, so when at a time when um, the price of, of oil, gas, and resources are high, uh, that translates into a lot of, of, of money flowing into Mongolia. Um, and then you can be able to afford a lot of things. But then um, things, of course, change, like the gas, uh, oil gas prices. Uh, for example, it, it, um, a couple of years ago, uh, it was quite high, but now it's, quite, it's, it's, it's you know, down in, in, uh, on the floor. And so this up and down, the, the kind of... Um, uh, swing like a yo-yo uh, kind of prices in in commodities, um, in as uh, turn um, countries like uh, Mongolia, Mongolia, and uh, there are other countries depending on resources, um, into a very unstable kind of economy. So when the prices go up, they tend to overspend. When the prices go down, and then they tend they're they're they're, they're more in debt. Uh, so this is called the resource curse. Um, and of course, that there is uh, another uh, name for it, which is called a Dutch disease. So if they're so reliant on Chinese mineral exports, is there any effort on Mongolia's part to steer away from that? I think that they, they are, they're trying to um, diversify you know, from uh, resources, but it's easier said than done for lack of, of infrastructure because it's completely landlocked. How are you going to export your... First of all, you've got to extract all these minerals and from the land, and and have you got enough um, technicians? You know, have and enough equipment, uh, and some of the terrain is is quite difficult. Um, so you lack resources, and after extraction, how are you going to export your 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 commodities um, to your markets? I think that the 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 idea is that apart from diversification, it's easier said than done. Everybody say, well, I'm going to diversify, I'm going to be uh, self-reliant, um, as I said, I mean, have you got the infrastructure? Um, not only physical infrastructure, but also human, 
um, uh, resources. Um, give you one example, one country um, used in my previous uh, presentation uh, on how to um, escape the kind of resource curse uh, and also um, diversification um, is the development of so-called linkage industries. In other words, you, you, can't, you, you just can't say, well, I'm going to diversify and next time I'm going to be the next New York. Is there an example that you can point to from another country that has achieved this kind of diversification? So a very successful um, country um, in diversification um, is Botswana in Africa. I think that there's a lesson for, um, for Mongolia as well. Uh, Botswana, of course, uh, depend, depended upon its um, diamond industry. Of course, um, diamond, um, uh, they, they, they specialize in large diamonds, not normally found in other uh, countries, even though in terms of volume, they, doesn't produce, they don't produce um, that, that much, but uh, because of the larger diamonds, um, and then they're found in Botswana. But unfortunately, um, the diamond industry is dominated by the beers. They call the shots, and they impose on very, very harsh terms uh, on, um, on Botswana. But... Um, so the country uh, thought about it and waited until the, um, uh, this current license with De Beers expires. And they, in renewal, they impose on De Beers very strict uh, conditions to develop their own cutting, um, um, diamond cutting um, uh, um, um, technical expertise. So as a result, uh, Botswana is now the world's third largest, um, most um, uh, advanced um, cutting diamond cutting industry after Israel and, 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 and Belgium and it's ahead of China, ahead of India. So this is an example that you, you capitalize on your resources but you develop the so-called so linkage industries. Now coming back to Mongolia, they're, they're very rich in, in, in um, say uh, gold and, but you can develop your own jewelry design industry uh, or making jewelry so it's high value added and if they, they're rich in copper, they can produce copper components. Um, and they're rich in coal and gas, and they can produce chemicals or, or clean coal. So I think that, you know, Mongolia needs to think about its linkage industries. But it's easier said than done again. In order to develop the in linkage industries like Botswana, they've got to develop their own te technical expertise. So they've got to establish technical institutes. Now they've got to train up their people. And then the government has got a very, very um, um, uh, precise blueprint uh, from A to B. How do we get there? How, you know, what kind of people we need? How do we get the, the, the people expertise built up? So that's one thing, um, the, the capabilities to build up the linkage industry. The other thing is infrastructure, as I said, using, um, taking advantage of China's failed road to make sure that they can export uh, their products you know, to other countries, to, to markets. The third thing um, that, um, um, that holds back Mongolia is its institutions or lack of it because it's very, um, uh, it's, it's, it's noted for its uh, corruption. Um, and according to um, the uh, Transparency International, um, it's, it's one of the, um, the more corrupt countries. So I think that, the, um, and again, that this is uh, very important because with all this uh, wealth, coming from uh, uh, resources um, is an invitation to, um, to corruption. So I think that in uh, building up institutions um, 
to minimize uh, or to um, not to eradicate uh, corruption is also important. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. For a long time, Mongolia used to be a part of the Chinese Empire. That was until 1911 when Mongolia split away. But Mongolia used to be divided into two parts, Outer Mongolia and Inner Mongolia. Outer Mongolia was the half that broke away and became what we know today as the Republic of Mongolia. The other half, known as Inner Mongolia, remains to this day a part of China. Even now, this border province of China contains more ethnic Mongolians than the actual Republic of Mongolia. So I want to know, how does this disparity in nationalities impact the relationship between Ulaanbaatar and Beijing? Well, let's not forget that, um, uh, what I was saying in the beginning, that there was, there was no outer Mongolia or in, uh, in the Mongolia. There was one single Mongolia in the first place. It was now split into the, um, the so-called outer Mongolia, which later became independent. The inner Mongolia, which is the southern part, uh, is the province of China, uh, the province of, of, of inner Mongolia. Um, and of course, the, 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 these, uh, be, uh, be, between these two places, um, it's the same people. It's the, it's the Mongolian people with a great history. China always wants to um, integrate uh, the various the so-called Western provinces or the Indo provinces because the China's model um, for the past uh, so, so many years um, since China opened up has been un, um, un, uh, heavily dependent on the Eastern seaboard. Um, place, you know, so trading in the, the Guangzhou and Shanghai and, and, and so on. Um, that creates a huge imbalance, um, apart from the imbalance between um, the cities and the villages, but also the imbalance be- between the eastern seaboard uh, and the inner provinces. Um, and, and it creates a degree of instability. I mean, for example, in the, uh, the greater inner provinces like um, Xinjiang and Tibet, um, I mean, that's, that's almost one third of China. And these places are very rich in resources, but they are so remote. Um, and then if the people get uh, got cut off, then they become less, um, um, there is a less feeling that they're part of a Chinese nation. So that's, that's, um, that, that, that's the thing. But you're quite right. I mean, um, emigration uh, of ethnic Chinese could create uh, problems, if, particularly if it's um, happening too fast. Like Xinjiang, for example, in the um, um, in Urumqi, uh, the capital of Xinjiang, um, the largest population is no longer the Xinjiang Uyghurs. They are the Han Chinese, and obviously the the, the local Uyghurs feel um, that the Hans are trying to uh, dominate uh, their own culture, and and of course that they dominate the economy uh, because they they because their connections with with all the businesses um, in 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 the part of China. So this 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 kind of problems uh, would happen. Uh, but be that as it may, coming back to Mongolia, the most important thing um, is to the economy, uh, the institutions, um, 
um, the uh, the corruption, um, but also the capabilities uh, to build up um, their own economy to be able to um, to give them the capability to to seize their own future. Otherwise, they'll have to, they're, they're subject to all sorts of influence uh, from their neighbors. Over 80% of Mongolia's current exports head to China. And as anyone who listened to our piece on Turkmenistan knows, that path is not sustainable. So Mongolia is looking outwards for an economic life raft, hoping to gain some of its leverage back against Beijing. But as we know, every deal in geopolitics is a two-way street. So they may be very happy to do the deal, but what do countries like the US and Turkey hope to gain from Mongolia? What's in it for them? Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Between a Rock and a Hard Place So in recent history, let's take the last 150 years, Mongolia has gone from being a colony of the Qing Dynasty of China to being very closely aligned with the Soviet Union, but remaining independent under Soviet tutelage, whatever you want to call that status, to then having a really a homegrown democratic revolution in 1990 and looking to how it might interact with the rest of the world while bringing along historical ties to places like Germany in Europe or like North Korea in Asia, uh, with whom it had at various historical times friendly relationships that wanted to be maintained but then developing new relationships in the status as a, as a much more independent and democratic country since 1990, and also ensuring or looking for assurance that it would not fall back under domination by one of the two big neighbors. And so friendliness with everyone is one of the solutions to that. Julian Durkis has a PhD in sociology from Princeton University and is currently a professor of sociology focusing on East and Central Asia of the University of British Columbia. He is an absolute expert in Mongolia's key role in the region of East Asia. He joins us today. So I think compared to many countries that had been under Soviet domination, Mongolians have a generally positive outlook, not just to contemporary Russia, but to the Soviet link as well. It's important to remember that um, when the Socialist revolution happened in the early 1920s and Mongolia was the second country in the world to follow that path. The link with the Soviet Union brought some crimes. Yes, lamas were murdered in the 30s. Obviously, Stalin and his successors were not always kind <laughs> overlords. But it also brought a lot of development that Mongolians think of as a, as a real gain. Uh, take something like literacy that was presumably achieved in the 1960s, more or less complete literacy. And this is for a country that 50 years prior had been, you know, a nomadic sort of feudal, feudal um, theocracy. And so some of these achievements are continued to be really appreciated and they're tied to that Soviet connection. And so the, the image of contemporary Russia is not tainted by a sense of colonial exploitation by the Soviet Union, but rather by the sense of some real gains were made through the assistance of the Soviet Union. Since 1990 then, that generally positive outlook has remained, 
Mongolians continue to go study in Russia, but they also study in lots of other places these days. Um, and from the other side, Russia has variably been interested or paid attention to Mongolia, uh, but not consistently so, and has not been consistently oppressive or aggressive in any way, so that I think for contemporary Mongolians, the relationship remains relatively positive. And how does that relationship with Moscow compare to, let's say, the relationship with Beijing? So the relationship to China and to the Chinese regime and to Beijing is sort of the flip side of the relationship with Russia in that there is a perception of historical ill will, uh, perhaps an exploitation, so that under the Qing dynasty, Mongolia was treated as a as a colony and, and exploited to some extent for, for Qing purposes. And that the, that independence in 1911 was also independence in the sense that it was a liberation from domination by China. And so there's continuing unhappiness, shall we say, about that colonial history. Uh, and of course, since the Sino-Soviet split in the 1960s, many generations of Mongolians received a fairly heavy dose of anti-Chinese propaganda in the state socialist period um, that had them predisposed towards not looking very kindly uh, to China. Since 1990 then, uh, perhaps not so much happened in the relationship with China in the 90s, but then increasingly in the 2000s, as Mongolia developed economically, uh, Chinese economic domination over Mongolia has become more and more acute. Um, basically, the entire economy is focused on China, both in imports and exports. So there are increasingly I would say increasing numbers of the elites who have such close economic ties with China, who speak Chinese, uh, whose interactions are with China, that, that Mongolians are beginning to be drawn into a Chinese orbit a little bit, though reluctantly. China and Russia regularly donate money and help out competing political candidates in Mongolia, hoping for a more favorable outcome for themselves in whichever situation. But at the same time, Beijing and Moscow work together in Mongolia on projects like the high-speed rail lines. Is Mongolia somewhere where China and Russia compete, or is it somewhere where China and Russia work together? Yeah, so um, there's been different phases of where Russia and China have or have not competed over Mongolia, I would say. The current situation is such that following the invasion of the Crimea, Russia has become, and President Putin has become a bit of a, not quite a supplicant, but he's certainly seeking Chinese favor, in part because he's lost, and Russia has lost so many other friends. And so that means that, um, not necessarily that Russia is ceding Mongolia to Chinese influence or so, but certainly there's less competition over Mongolia than there might have been in the past. On the other hand, there are certain sectors that at least parts of the Russian um government and economic establishment see as rightfully not quite theirs, but as a sphere of influence. So, for example, uranium mining. Uh, in the late 2000s, around 2010, um, some Canadian uranium mining companies, for example, were pushed out of the sector for what seems at sort of at the behest of Moscow, as far as we can tell. So uranium mining is an example. Um, oil supply, similarly, is entirely from Siberia into Mongolia. And so that's, a, that's another sector that is sort of perceived as, as Russian. And then the third prominent one is the railroad, um, because as is true across Central Asia, there's this ongoing um, 
yeah, competition fight, whatever you want to call it, over railroad gauge, right? Where the Russian gauge is a broad gauge and the, the Chinese gauge is narrow and they're not very compatible, um, literally not compatible. Uh, so far, in part because um, there's a Russian ownership stake in the Mongolian National Railroad Company, Russian gauge prevails, uh, but that continues to be a, a stone of contention as it is in Central Asia. The other nation very interested in Mongolia's future is the United States. All three of its last presidents have met with the president of Mongolia, and the current Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, has made a number of visits to the nation. What is the US hoping to gain from improving relations with Ulaanbaatar? Yeah, Washington has changed its relationship in the last couple of years. There's the historical relationship that's mostly associated with uh, Secretary of State James Baker, who in the early 1990s, around the time of the Democratic Revolution, seems to have developed a real fondness for Mongolia. Then there was another moment under George W. Bush where the Mongolians joined um, military action in Iraq and sent troops to Iraq that that, um, produced a lot of... uh, American goodwill. Um, There were other moments. Hillary Clinton came on a visit um, as Secretary of State to Mongolia, acknowledging Mongolia's status as sort of the last, if things go really badly with North Korea, the Mongolians would be likely to have the last open phone line, is is sort of the the perception in some ways, to then the most recent actions, as you mentioned, The Mongolian president was in Washington. Uh, Secretary Pompeo is going to Mongolia next week. Um, There's been a strategic partnership declared. There's an act before the U.S. Congress. It's the Third Neighbor Trade Act that is aiming at reducing tariffs for Mongolian cashmere imports primarily. Where is this all coming from? So obviously we were all dealing with a U.S. foreign policy that is, um, shall we say, erratic uh, over the last three and a half years. Um, the suspicion, my suspicion would be that much, it's all symbolic, right? There's very little that's, there's very little economic of an economic relationship. So there's very little at stake in terms of imports, exports. So perhaps this is from the American side. This is mostly needling China because Mongolia is right next door to China. And so when you become greater buddies with a neighbor, perhaps that is upsetting uh, to the Chinese regime. I would have to guess. Uh, There's nothing obvious that's changing. There's no growing military relationship that's existed all along, but it's not growing. The economic relationship is not likely to grow. There's no big investment. So that kind of leaves symbolic politics. So I think it's about needling China. So if the US can't help in any dramatic way, why bother then? You know, why not just stick with Russia and China as your friends? So the decision was made in the in the course of the 1990s that Mongolia needed to look to friends beyond its immediate neighbors for support, in part as a quasi-balance to the sort of overwhelming importance of those two neighbors, right? The idea being we have these somewhat pushy two neighbors, so let's reach out to to um, you know, ideation, ideal neighbors beyond those borders to cement some friendships. Democracy um, and the status as a democracy was one of the the keys that unlocked a number of potential friendships. Uh, 
that was in the 1990s that was most obviously um, Japan and Asia, um, South Korea as well. Later on, India sort of joined that category in the Mongolian mind. Um, in Europe, it's been primarily Germany and the UK. In North America, it's been uh, the US and Canada. And then, especially since the 2000s, through mining investment, Australia has joined in all of this. And so this is a, a way for the Mongolians to leverage their status as a democracy to gain attention by or attention from big um, developed democracies. And so it's been fairly successful as a tool, I think, in many ways, you would say that at certain times, at least, Mongolia has sort of, um, in US baseball terms, batted above its average um, in, in the sense of getting attention from from countries like the UK or the US or Australia, when its economic and population significance in the world is really much smaller. But because it has this link of saying, look, we're this image of the scrappy democracy, we, we're deserving of your support, that has given it access to uh, at least discussions with governments in those countries. And Mongolia takes its role on the world stage very seriously even deploying Mongol troops to the U.S. missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Why would Mongolia choose to get involved in these countries? So the troops in Afghanistan are primarily a function of Mongolia's desire to be very engaged at the UN level. And Mongolia has become a significant contributor to peacekeeping efforts. There's roughly a thousand Mongolians stationed in UN missions, not just in Afghanistan. I think the biggest number currently is in uh, South Sudan, um, and so Mongolia has become much more involved in peacekeeping operations. And so Afghanistan was sort of an early step towards that. Um, but it was also obviously um, some, some not quite alliance, but some friendship with the U.S. Um, and thus Afghanistan. So with so many Mongols living in the Chinese province of Inner Mongolia, do you think we may ever see a movement in the future for Inner Mongolia to rejoin the rest of the republic? No, I think there is that worry. And I think it's made um, the Chinese regime relatively um, soft on Mongolia for the past 10 years or so. There's flare-ups in that relationship, inevitably around the Dalai Lama visit. I mean, that's one of those things that just sets the Chinese regime off. Um, There are some other topics, but less so. But, uh, you know, I think it's quite indicative that none of the very large natural resource projects in Mongolia are Chinese-owned or even heavily invested, Um, even though, of course, all products go to our soul towards China. That's where the destination for all those resources. And so I take that as as an indicator that uh, even though, realistically speaking, not just the Chinese regime itself, but also its many companies would have had opportunity to muscle into Mongolian Uh, projects, they have not. And I think the reason why that is, is because there is a lingering unease about the Mongolian population in southern Mongolia, what what is called uh, the Inter-Mongolian Autonomous Region. Uh, And there is a fear that 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 co-ethnic state is the fact that there is a diaspora, but that there's a home state, if you will, unlike Uyghurs, for example, that have a historical home state in East Turkestan, but contemporary Mongolians in southern Mongolia actually have Mongolia to look towards. Uh, And even though any kind of unification seems highly unlikely, that does make the Chinese government um, 
nervous, I think. And we see that at the moment in the flare-up of protests in in uh, southern Mongolia that I, you know, I'm not a China expert, so I know a little about that, but it, they're mirrored in Mongolia for the first time very actively with former President Ebekdoj uh, inserting them himself into this discussion with a lot of Mongolians on social media, taking note of these protests in southern Mongolia and pointing to suppression of Mongolian language rights. Uh, and so the tone has changed a little bit. And for example, the Chinese ambassador in Mongolia has reacted quite aggressively towards some of the interventions by the by former President Ebekdoj in a way that we hadn't seen before. Um, it's not really clear whether that's a change of tone from China, a new assertiveness maybe, but um, there is a long lingering issue there that bubbles up occasionally. I think there's an interesting debate going on at the moment in Mongolia over the country's script or letter characters. Right now, the country speaks Mongolian, but writes using a Cyrillic alphabet, which is Russian-style characters. But there is a push among some to move the country back to their traditional, vertical-style Mongol cursive. And quite a few Chinese officials encourage this for Mongolia. Although saying that, from an analysis done on Mongolia's social media, 52% of young people were using Mongol language with a Latin alphabet. Do you think the purpose of the Chinese officials pushing the Mongols towards their own script is to help further isolate them from Western culture? And do you think the Latinization of youth's social media is a sign of Westernization amongst the next generation of Mongols? I, I think Russia has almost no position on this. I don't think they're too bothered by Cyrillic or not. Um, Cyrillic was adopted in 1942, and it's you know the convenient option for Mongolia is to stick with it because it, it means no change. The script, of course, has been preserved, if you will, in China and is continues to be in use. And a lot of Mongolians see that as a really important preservation of one aspect of culture, at least. And so that's where this concern currently about some of the decisions by the Chinese regime comes comes from. Um, there are proposals for Mongolia to shift back to the script. Um, the script is used in some official documents. So when you walk around Ulaanbaatar, you, you know, ministries have a sign on the front that's both in Cyrillic as well in the, in the script. Um, I don't know how... I don't, I don't really see a particularly strong desire amongst younger or older Mongolians to shift to the script. Cyrillic is using, is, works well. I think there's no support for, for um, Latin, uh, f to go to Latin, to a Latin alphabet. I think there's no interest in that. Uh, and when sometimes you see some um, posts in, um, in Latin letters online, that's sort of a convenience of, you know, keyboards on, on smartphones. Um, although these days everyone has a Mongolian language keyboard, even on their smartphone. So there's, if anything, there's less of that now than there was three or four years ago. But let's talk about some hypotheticals here. If China was to play hardball and pull all of its exports from Mongolia, what would happen to the Mongol economy? Yeah, a Chinese uh, full-on boycott or closing of the border is a is an economically existential threat, absolutely. Um, I mean, there is a railroad connection through Russia, obviously, to Europe. Um, you know, there's some notion of you could conceivably railroad go to Russian Pacific coasts, um, so into port, like into Vladivostok or other ports. Um, but yeah, that would be that's a huge threat, um, and it's. But the only time that's been enacted as a threat was uh, was Dalai Lama visits in Mongolia in the past, where the Mongolians, uh, the Chinese, have closed the border. 
Um, you know, for now, Mongolia has resources to offer that that Chinese industry needs, um, especially copper, uh, from the from two giant projects, uh, Ednet, long-standing project since the 70s, and Oyutogoi, which is still under development in the Gobi Desert. Um, so presumably, the desirability of the product precludes closing the border, but that is a possibility, yeah, and it's a grave threat. The Chinese embassy in Vladivostok recently made a case for a historical Chinese claim on parts of Mongolia and Siberian Russia, much the way Chinese claims on the South China Sea started. Do you think this is a signal of future Chinese aggression in the north, or just hot air by the embassy? I think that's still a little bit unclear. I, I, those questions are new, though. Uh, I think three, four, five years ago, I certainly wasn't wondering about uh, China asserting anything really, uh, other than you know trade partnership towards Mongolia or to the Russian Far East. The recent events around Foreign Minister Wang, um, the Chinese ambassador in Mongolia, being very vocal and, and somewhat rude to a former president. Um, that all could be a change of tone, but it could also just be a bit of a blip. Um, you know, ambassadors probably want a posture when their foreign minister comes to visit. Uh, the current wolf diplomacy in, in China, maybe maybe this ambassador thought he'd look good towards his foreign minister by looking aggressive. It's a bit hard to tell. But the question itself, I think one of the, it's indicative that we're asking this question because we wouldn't have asked it recently. Which direction do you see the future of Mongolia heading in? I think economic developments inevitably are focused on China. There just is no way around that reality. There are some tendencies towards also cozying up a little bit more or at least reducing animosity towards China, culturally, perhaps even politically. Uh, but I don't see that widely supported. Um, I do, you know, there was another parliamentary election in June, there's another presidential election next summer. Elections are celebrated in Mongolia. I don't really think that anyone is quite willing to give up and go authoritarian in any way. And that's what the two neighbors represent, and they're not attractive in that way. Uh, neither system of government, neither regime, Moscow or Beijing, is terribly attractive to large numbers of Mongolians. And so I think that hesitancy will continue. Uh, obviously, the U.S. It will depend very much on what happens in November in the election. Um, the current proposal under the Trump administration has been that there are no more student visas. Mongolia is on that list of countries that will not get um, four-year visas for students anymore. And that would cut off uh, Mongolian students from studying in the U.S. I, mean, I, I have no idea how anyone in Washington thinks this is sensible policy, that it would just simply eliminate the U.S. as a higher education destination. And that's where future elites are one, right, in higher education. This obviously is something that Australia has been very active in, but, but Europe as well. So um, if there's a... if 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 that madness in Washington continues, that I can't really see that Mongolia would turn much towards Washington. Um, but at the same time, you know, Australia, ongoing links with uh, with Germany, maybe Canada would rise to the fore a little bit more, are all 
attractive to many Mongolians and, and I think will hold their attraction. So I think my guess would have to be that the next 20 years will continue roughly as the last 20. Um, you know, deal with the neighbors constructively as you have to, uh, but otherwise find friends around the world and participate in global development. Mongolia was dealt a very rough set of cards. Sparse internal waterways, negative 40 temperatures in winter, mostly flat terrain, and squished between two huge world powers. Even the small hopes of being connected with their ancestors in Kazakhstan is dashed by a 30-kilometer Sino-Russian corridor in the west of the country. So to Beijing or Moscow are the only easy directions for Mongol policy. Saying that though, this is Mongolia, a nation that was once the largest contiguous empire in the world, stretching from the tip of South Korea to the middle of Europe to the deserts of Egypt. This nation is very capable of great things. We see this through their fantastic work in being the mediator in many Asian disputes, playing a similar role to Oman in the Middle East. Through this, they've actually managed to have good ties with nations like India, Turkey and the US, punching well above the weight their cards had dealt them. The cards may have been rough, and an increasingly aggressive China is not good news for Mongolia. The hope is they can hold their ground and keep their important place in Eurasian politics in order to stave off any temptation of invasion from the south or from the north. Remember, what happens in Mongolia may be a bellwether for future actions towards other Central Asian neighbours. So as much as pop culture may have forgotten about Mongolia, the rest of us shouldn't. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Once again, hearing all your feedback, DMs, and comments continuously brings a smile to my face. Over this fortnight is technically the show's one-year anniversary, but for reasons that will become apparent soon, we had to push back our one-year special. But we're very excited to bring you that one very soon, as we've been working on that one for quite a while now. If you want to help the show out, you can donate to us on Patreon. Every single dollar you donate goes back into the show. I regularly meet and have online beers with a lot of our Patreons, pretty much any of our Patreons that ask for it. And I've been blown away by just how friendly, knowledgeable, and funny a lot of our Patreons are. So if you ever want to catch up for a drink or a cup of tea, please feel free to donate to our Patreons and book a time. I really do enjoy these meetups, and every single dollar you donate goes straight back into the show and helps us stay independent. But if you don't have any money at the moment, you can also show your support by liking and following the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or you can follow myself on Twitter at Mike Hilliard Oz. Oz is in Australia. As usual, a huge thanks goes out to all of our guests this week. Morris Robussi was amazing to work with on this piece. One of the cheeriest, nicest people I've ever had the pleasure of working with on the show. He doesn't have a Twitter, but he does have a book coming out very soon on the Uyghur Muslims. So be sure to share that on our Twitter when that one drops. Andrew Leung came to us highly recommended and I can easily see why. Economics is often a huge part of geopolitics. So understanding the economics helped us understand the larger Mongolian predicament. He is often doing great work on the economics of East Asia and you can find him on Twitter at Andrew K.P. Leung. Julian Durkis is very well known in the academic circles for his work on Mongolia and he gave us a great insight into just how important Mongolia is to the balance of power in Asia. He is someone I highly recommend you follow to get a better understanding of where the continent is heading and what can be done about it. 
Remember, what happens here today is what happens elsewhere tomorrow. You can find him on Twitter at jdurkus. As always, a big thanks goes out to all of my team for their help on this one. We really could not do the show without them. I want to thank Joe Hawthorne, who helps out with the audio for the show, my good friend Christopher Schwartz, who helped out curating some of the guests for this week's episode, and of course, Mark Spencer, who does the additional vocals for this episode that are not mine. I am absolutely blessed to have these three helping out on the show, as all three of these guys have amazing careers and projects of their own. So every bit of help they give me is just a huge bonus. You can find Joe on Twitter at Joe E. Hawthorne. You can find Chris on Twitter at Schwartztronica. And you can find Mark on Twitter at Climactic. Once again, the final thank you goes out to you for tuning into the show. It boggles my mind that it's been nearly a year of doing this program. I've probably sunk around 1,200 hours of my own time into the program so far. But it all feels worth it. Because connecting and chatting with so many people over this year has been absolutely amazing. So to everyone who liked, commented, shared, or listened to the show, I just want to say thank you. It really does mean a lot. We will be back next fortnight with another international episode. But for now, thank you and good night.